Hello and welcome to the Diabetes Dugout with Brighty and Peachy, brought to you by the Diabetes Football Community. This is your regular dose of all things football and diabetes as we bring you the stories of those affected by the condition who have a love of the sport. Everything we share and talk about on this podcast is from personal experience and if you have any concerns about the management of your condition, you should always check in with a healthcare professional. Now, with all that said, let's crack on with the episode. Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Diabetes Dugout. Joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Chris Bright. Brighty, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks mate. How are you doing? I'm all right, well, say I'm all right. I'm still getting over the absolute farce that was watching Tottenham at the weekend. Yeah, um, it was an interesting game, wasn't it, Pam? Um, I'm going to say... Not really, you... not really, no. <laughs> You were complete and utterly outclassed. I can't think of any other way of putting it. it oh, maybe we, we didn't even show up. It was, it was embarrassing. I mean, City could have easily won that five, six, seven nil. We yeah. just, I mean, fair, fair play. Man City were were great, and I think they are a great team to watch. As much as it might pain me, but um, yeah, it's a real shame for a cup final that. So many players went missing and, and underperformed. Yeah, it was an interesting one to watch. Obviously, you've got one of the world's greatest number nines at the moment in terms of Harry Kane. Nobody can deny that. And to see him almost um, a passenger within the game, it just passing by completely in a cup final, was a shame to see, I suppose, for a spectacle. Um, but, you know, you sat the manager at the start of the week who's renowned for winning trophies and you put somebody in charge who's really never managed a senior game and it's a big game it just it didn't it didn't fill me with confidence that you were going to put up much of a fight beforehand and uh, so it proved to be mate and you know obviously disappointed for you that they were a bit toothless but I suppose what do you expect Man City are unbelievable at the moment as well they are they are Phil, Phil Foden what a player I think he's. I think he's one of my favourite players to watch at the moment as well. He's going to be a phenomenal um, asset to any team in the future. I can imagine Man City are going to cling on to him for for dear life. I think he he the world's his oyster. He can go on and do anything the way he's playing at the moment. So it's uh, it's fascinating to watch his development. But yeah, he's some talent. Yes. Anyway, can, can we move on from the cup final, please? I'm still not over it. <laughs> it's a sore subject. So, with it being a sore subject, John, why don't we get straight into the episode this week? So, who is going to be on the diabetes dugout today? Righty, today we have got someone who has shown how hard work really pays off. Through his hard work, he's attended over 900 sporting events offering expert thoughts and opinions whilst commentating on a variety of sports. Currently works for BT Sport and Talk Sport, amongst other companies. All of this after being diagnosed with diabetes just under six years ago. Today, we are joined by James Fielden. James, welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. How are we doing, James? You OK? 
How are we doing? Very well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, enjoying a little chat about the football. I'm a, I'm a Wolves fan, so it's not been a, it's not been a classic season by our recent good standards. I'm just uh, hoping that the football ends soon because I think everyone needs a bit of a break, really. On the Wolves, because oh, where to start? Changes all over the place. Wing backs selling Jota, lost a lot of goals there. Doherty going to Spurs. Don't think that move's really worked out for anyone, has it? And. Uh, yeah, issues all over the park, really. But, you know, they're not going no, down. No. Clean slate in the summer. Go again. James, when just get started, just talking, I mentioned there that, that you, you diagnosed just under six ago. Um, talk us through a little bit about your diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those classic people who didn't really have any idea. I knew what diabetes was, broadly speaking, but didn't know the kind of details, the symptoms or anything like that. Um, and what I can't remember of it now is that I was at a sports event in Baku in Azerbaijan um, and I was really thin. I thought I was smashing it at the gym. I was going there four or five times a week. I was playing football once a week. I just thought I was in a really good place, kind of um, health-wise or whatever. But I was drinking a lot. Um, water, I should say, not alcohol. And um, just didn't really think anything of it. Just thought I was thirsty. Um, I wasn't necessarily going to the toilet loads, but I was just drinking a lot. And um, yeah, I remember coming back from this event and some pictures had been put on Facebook and my mum messaged me and she was like, you look really thin, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, you know, absolutely fine. I'm just, you know, doing a lot of exercise and, you know, I'm just not, not eating loads because I'm in, working in the sun every day and all this kind of thing. And then me and a couple of mates went to uh, an event in Brixton, a big outdoor event. And uh, it was a two-day thing. We went on the first day and had some drinks. Um, and on the second day, having been on a night out the night before, went back again but decided just to have water. And me and uh, a friend of mine went to a shop to get some water. She picked up just a standard kind of bottle of water that you carry around in your hand. And I went to the till with two one-and-a-half-litre bottles of, uh, of Evian or whatever it was. And she was like, why on earth are you getting that much? You don't need that much. And I was like, well, I'm just thirsty. Um... Anyway, push came to shove, and my mum, I think it was, persuaded me to go to the doctors just to check that everything was okay. Um, and he tested my sugar levels there and then, and uh, it just said high. It wouldn't even give a reading. I was, I was that high on the scale. And um, he just basically said straight away, you've got diabetes. Um, he, said, I want you to, he said that, and he said, I want you to go home, don't eat any sugary stuff over the course of the weekend, come back on Monday, and we'll you know, reassess and decide what to do or whatever. And then I went back home, had lunch and got a call from him straight away. He said, I want you to go to hospital. I booked you in, you're going to skip A&E, you're going to go straight through. And within, uh, you know, a couple of hours, I was lying on a bed with, uh, you know, like a drip in my arm or whatever it was. And um, yeah, it all happened very, very quickly. And I was out of hospital by the end of the day with insulin under my arm. So um, it was quite a whirlwind, quick kind of thing, really. And um the other thing was, was that I'd been to the doctors because I had a, a really weird rash across my chest. And that's why I initially went and he'd given me these pills. Um, and I ended up going back because the pills cured it. But as soon as I stopped taking the pills, um, the rash came back. And so that's why I actually ended up going to the doctors thinking about it. And um, yeah, the diagnosis came after that. So uh, as I say, I mean, I'm 32 now. So I um, came when I was, you know, 26 odd, which, you know, for a lot of, Diabetics is quite quite late on in life, um, but yeah, I was one of the, the unlucky few, I guess. Yes, 
it, it sounds it definitely sounds interesting and you you mentioned there about the the, the drinking the water and, and and your mum was commenting did did anyone in your family have any knowledge of diabetes or or, or what it was or or, or how it would uh, yeah, affect I mean, my, you my mum my mum knew because she's just quite good on those kind of things you know medical matters she's got a kind of very broad knowledge of all those kind of things but certainly no one in the family had diabetes so there's no knowledge of it from anything like that um and you know no one knew how to necessarily treat it and i remember you know my mom actually came down to visit me a couple of days after diagnosis and you know we went shopping together and she's like, oh you can't have this bread you've got to have the granary bread and literally every single thing i picked up she's like oh no we need to get you an alternative option instead and all this kind of thing and she was worrying so much and you know understandably so um but no there wasn't really a, a knowledge at all it's just probably the same as me and that you know you know that a lot of people have diabetes and there are two types of it but certainly didn't know any of the kind of major symptoms or anything like that so it was a new thing for a lot of us really yeah and, and and you mentioned um there that you'd you'd gone in sort of you you got called back to hospital you went in and then you were discharged later that day what um can you remember your sort of the, the thoughts going through your head as to as to what this would mean to you and, and did you feel that like that that was that was too soon to be discharged did you feel confident was or was your head just absolutely spinning um, I wouldn't say it was spinning. Without trying to blow my own trumpet, I'm quite a, a relaxed kind of person. But I remember uh, the doctors or one of the diabetes specialists came over to me and she was like, you've got this for life. This is your life changed. Um, you know, this is going to be a big deal for you. And, you know, I've just been quite lucky over the years, really, that I haven't really had to go to the hospital for too many things or anything like that. So, you know, then to go in there and get told that, you know, this is going to alter massively alter your life and you're gonna to have to think a lot more about what you're eating and doing and all that kind of thing i guess it was a shock but i don't think it really sunk in until i actually went back home and did a lot more reading on it and all that kind of thing and then actually a couple of weeks later met a friend of my mom's who was type one as well and she kind of just put a lot of fears at ease really in terms of you know how strict you're going to have to be with things and how it alters your lifestyle and all that kind of thing um she put it in a lot more simple terms than some of the health professionals um so yeah it was it was a, it was a really big deal at the time but at the same time i do i think i just went home and had a normal night's sleep i don't think it was anything complicated after that so um yeah again i was quite lucky in that sense really yeah i suppose it's been a a period of upheaval at that very beginning james and um from there on obviously you're you were diagnosed at the age of 26 as you said um you're probably midway progressing nicely into your career and just wanted you to sort of talk about how that might have impacted on those moments where you were establishing yourself what sort of things did it kick up around that you, you know your job and um your interest at the time what, what sort of things did it throw uh, up well, what sort of challenges were there in terms of my work, another one of the symptoms, which again, I didn't really think anything of at the time, but now is kind of obvious, is that my vision was going really blurry. I'd be, I remember going to Fulham's training ground to cover a match, and I was actually doing some written work that day, I wasn't commentating, and I remember look, trying to look at my laptop screen, and like the words were just really blurry in front of me, and I was trying to, you know, I kept rubbing my eyes and trying to work out why this was happening, but again, didn't really think anything of it at the time. And then I was doing another game at Talksport and my eyes were really blurry and I couldn't really 
I couldn't see the notes that I've got written down in front of me in terms of, you know, the players and the numbers they're wearing and all that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of before the diagnosis. Um, afterwards, it was quite different for me because I think I had quite a long honeymoon period. So certainly for the first few years, I actually, my levels were generally quite good. Um, and didn't really have too many problems in that sense. But one thing that I've always done uh, in the last few years, really, is if anything, you know, have quite a big meal beforehand just to make sure that if anything, I'm a little bit too high in, in, instead of a little bit too low because the last thing you want to do is be midway through a football match and, you know, being a commentator, you can't really stop. There's not really a chance to pause once a game has kicked off. You have to wait until half time or full time. Um, I'd much rather be at, you know, 10, for example, rather than 4.5. But, you know, it has happened on occasion where I have I have dropped low and I've just felt it during a game. I've had to, you know, mute my mic for 30 seconds, which isn't necessarily not normal in, in football commentary. And just hope that no one has a shot on goal and just reaching for my bag and grabbing a sachet or two of sugar just to kind of steady myself because, you know, everyone, everyone who has diabetes knows when you get those kind of feelings that you're going a bit low. Um, thankfully they've been kind of quite obvious for me on those few occasions that it's happened so yeah it has happened to me in matches and I wouldn't say it's scary but just doesn't really completely have me at ease. Yeah and just interested as well James as to how you got into it obviously there must be a a significant interest in football to begin with and um, we were talking before we came on to the podcast about your your club team, your affiliation, the jumper that you're wearing to do the podcast in. So where did that kind of um, inspiration to get involved in this element of the game come from? And, and when when did you start? Yeah, I mean, none of my parents were massively interested in football growing up. And um, I actually remember being on the playground at my first school and one of my best mates used to play football, but I didn't. I don't really know what I was doing instead of playing football. I wasn't playing football. And he came up to me one day and he was like, oh... Uh, we need a player, can you play? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, there's only one condition. And he's like, you have to be a Wolves fan. <laughs> and that's basically how I became a Wolves fan, which was, um, which was interesting. But then, yeah, and so as a result of them not really being interested in football, I, we didn't have Sky from uh, a fair amount of me growing up. So the only kind of football I was kind of really seeing was either match of the day on a Saturday night or Champions League on ITV. And Clive Tilsley was the commentator. I remember all those Manchester United games in the late 90s, early noughties, Andy Cole, Dwight York, Ruben Nistelrooy. I just, I just kind of fell in love with it through that, I think, and the combination of playing as well. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do after A-levels. Didn't really have any motivation to do well in my A-levels. Didn't get good grades, but somehow got into a course at Staffordshire University. And then moved courses after a couple of years and ended up graduating with a degree in sports journalism. Um, came out and was, you know, scratching around looking for a job. Uh, and emailed this company to do lots of video editing and stuff like that in terms of sport. Replied for this job, and they didn't get back to me. And then a couple of weeks later, this guy started following me on Twitter, who worked for the company called Perform. Um, and I sent him a DM, and I was saying, "Oh, you know, I've applied for this job. I haven't heard anything back. Can you help me? Can you tell me who I should speak to?" And uh, he said, "Yeah, no worries." And he came back about ten days later. He like. Sorry for the delay, mate. Really sorry, but uh, that job's gone. How do you fancy doing commentary instead? And uh, I was like, well, I mean, obviously I'd love to, but, you know, no commentator really has. Like, there's not, you can't really do a degree in commentating. It doesn't really work like that. Most commentators have these kind of random stories, like I'm kind of telling now. I basically went down there for a training day with my thick black country accent. 
and as it was at the time, it's not so thick now as you can hear. And uh, they said, we like what you're saying, but not the way you say it. And basically was saying that I kind of end sentences in a really weird style because of my accent. And they basically said to go away for the summer, try and train yourself independently, come back for the new season. And if your voice has kind of changed substantially enough to be broadcast quality, we'll give you the games to make it worth your while to come down. So that was it, sat in front of my little TV in my room all summer, watching an England under-21s European tournament on Sky. And uh, yeah, just spoke into a dictaphone and that was it. So I started doing all these random games that performed from leagues in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Japan, China, you know, the, the Asian Champions League, the whole spectrum, Israel, Turkey, across Europe and the world. And then kind of, you know, over the years have gone on, kind of branched out to working for different people. But uh, yeah, really random start. <laughs> people still find it funny now when I tell them my voice wasn't deemed good enough really, but uh, that's the way it was. Yeah, and that's no slur on that black country accent either, James. <laughs> no slur, as it's not too far away from where I've grown up. So, um, yeah, um, interesting that you managed to do that, though, and change it in just a summer, which is which surprises me that you were able to do it. Obviously, probably not through your own commitment and, um, you know, wanting to do it so much that you may, were able to do that, but also that you were able to undo what I know is quite a... Um, let's call it an ingrained dialect, especially if you were, you know, you'd grown up in that area as well. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't, I kind of actually grew up in, um, in the countryside, but when you're going to football every single Saturday and you're kind of surrounded by people who speak with a really thick accent, it's quite hard to, to shake off really. But, um, I mean, I got rid of it sufficiently to be given the work at the start, but even now when I kind of listen back to clips of myself and like, 2010, 11, 12, whenever it was, like it's so different to how I kind of speak now. But um, yeah, I think so over the years and obviously living in, in London as I do now, you kind of shake it off. And now I kind of hear myself saying words in almost a London accent, which I really don't like to be honest. But um, from a broadcast point of view, it's a lot more more neutral than it was having a, a West Midlands accent. So, um, so yeah, that's the, that's the way it was for me, but thankfully it's worked out. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. You're clearly doing very, very well at the moment. You know, we hear your voice more regularly now in some of those big, big games. Um, and, you know, I can hear you've done commentary in on Premier League games. You know, you've done commentary across a number of different areas. So what's the, probably the biggest game that you feel that you've you've commentated on up to this point? Ooh. Um, that's a good question, actually. I never really kind of think of it like that. I actually keep track of all the games I do. I mean, in terms of actual stature of game, I've commentated on like, you know, Boca Juniors against River Plate and Galatasaray against Fenerbahce. But maybe for those who don't know, you know, a lot of commentary is done what we call off-tube. So although you might be doing a game that's in Argentina or Turkey, you're actually doing it from a studio in London. Yeah. Um, and, you know, almost all foreign games that you'll watch on UK television are done from a studio in London somewhere. Um, it's just the way it is but because of cost you know you wouldn't send someone you know halfway across the world for the sake of 90 minutes Champions League and Europa League is a little bit different albeit this season everything's having to be done from London as well because of the travel restrictions due to Covid but um, yeah I don't know what the actual biggest game is I've done I've done a lot of championship games this season which has been a really big thing for me uh, which has you know kind of gone on like the highlight show each week on uh, on Quest and you know, do games semi-regularly for BT, which is also great. But in terms of an actual game, um, 
I'm not really sure I could put my finger on it, to be honest. I mean, I, I genuinely, this isn't just kind of avoiding the question, I do genuinely love every single game I do because it's different. Every time you sit down, you know, at a match, in a chair, in a studio, you know you're not going to see anything like you've seen before because, you know, you've got a bunch of 22 different players, two different coaches, different stadium, and anything can happen. And for me, that's the kind of buzz about my job is that no two days are the same. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine you get to see... Uh, so much variety, so many different teams, um, and I, I can imagine it's giving you lots of different opportunities to to get around and travel. And um, just was really interested as well around how you keep on top of your diabetes when the variety and the things that um, can impact on that are ever changing. So, for example as we've talked about um, off the podcast, you know, your timings and your schedules, you might be commentating of an evening, you might be commentating during the day. And just as anyone who might be playing the game knows that there's routine involved in that, and it may be different in the way that you manage your condition to, to take on that challenge of different timings. So what sort of things do you do to try and keep on top of it whilst you're going to be working hard commentating and you need your I suppose in, in you know in terms of some of the people that have been on this podcast it's been players people that are running around but actually you need your brain to be in tip-top shape to be able to to talk us through a game so what does that entail for you on a match day yeah it's a really good question actually and it's really hard because you know more so the travel than anything you know I actually had a, an appointment with my doctor the other day and she was you know asking about my lifestyle and that kind of thing and you know, the, the job you do is not a kind of office nine to five. There is no routine, as I, as I was saying before, like no two days are the same. And so, you know, you might be on the road for two or three days at a time and you're having to eat out each time because, you know, you're not at home. You're not in your kind of familiar surroundings and you're either having to go to, you know, a kebab shop because you finished the game at, you know, 9.30 at night and that's the only thing that's available because it's England and restaurants close, you know, earlier than the rest of Europe or... You know, you might be going to, you know, into Russia last, last year to commentate on a volleyball match. And, you know, none of the ingredients are in your language and your alphabet, let alone having any kind of, you know, values for carbohydrates or anything like that. Um, and so to a degree, you know, it really is a guessing game. You know, over the years, I've kind of developed my own kind of carb counting method in terms of I know roughly that if I'm serving myself X amount of, sweet potato like I've just had previously for my dinner tonight now I'm going to inject you know a certain amount of um of insulin but you know you go to a lot of football stadiums and you get given lunch beforehand which is great but you get given it in the form of a buffet and uh, I don't know if you guys are like me but if I get paid for the buffet I struggle to say no to things I like to go and try a bit of everything which is, which isn't great but um you know food's a massive part of my life which which was obviously going to be altered when I got diabetes but in a way I kind of said to myself mentally look I'm not going to sacrifice food you know for diabetes which probably isn't the kind of message you should be giving out to people but that's just the way it was for me but I found a way to kind of include all the food I love and inject at the same time and so um you know that's the way I've kind of felt it but yeah a lot of eating out which doesn't help it's not settled in that sense and say, you know, you're covering a game from South America, as I used to do at two o'clock in the morning from Buenos Aires, you know, you're then in a different space because 
for me, I inject, um, you know, Levomir twice a day just before I go to bed and, you know, when I wake up or, you know, early in the morning the next day. So if you're kind of then working into late into the night, you know, you're you're kind of in a very different different place, really. And as I was saying, like, my meals are very different. If I'm doing a game at um, 7 o'clock, for example, as a lot of the matches have been this season, I'm working from 6pm onwards when the team news gets released. I don't really want to be eating my dinner at five o'clock because it's just too early and you know that coupled with the fact that I don't eat breakfast because I don't often go out and kind of burn any car and any calories sorry in the morning because I'm often researching in the mornings um and having lunch at a normal time I don't want to eat dinner early so you know for me dinner can often be quite a late thing um unless I've you know got something quick that I can eat at half time but again I don't really like to do because it, it makes me quite um what's the word kind of quite not low, but not low in a diabetes sense, but quite drowsy is what I'm looking for, sorry, in the, in the second half of the match. So, you know, food is quite big in terms of the job because I don't want it to affect how I work. But, you know, you always have to keep, keep the diabetes in mind as well. And so, you know, the other thing is that when you're kind of eating from like a buffet, because you don't necessarily know how much you're going to eat, it's not always possible to inject 10 minutes before you're going to eat. It's not like tonight where I know that I sliced two sweet potatoes and I was going to inject x amount you sometimes have to wait until afterwards and so of course that affects your levels as well but um i'm quite lucky and i have one of the freestyle libra devices which makes you know, lets you keep on top of it a lot because you can just you know zap your phone against your arm and straight away you know where you are so especially during a game if i feel a little, I'm a little bit low again i can do that whereas you know previously having to do the, the finger pricks and all that kind of stuff was a lot more labor intensive so you know technology has really helped in that sense as well yeah, really, really interesting to hear how you manage it. Very different to my own experiences. I'm very used to needing to do it around exercise and um, looking to get performance in terms of me, my physical output and being able to achieve that on in, in situations and planning routine. Whereas for you, James, it sounds very much almost quite having, having some ideas and routines and, and plans in your mind, but they seem to be almost taken out of your hands in some ways by the fact that your job is so varied in terms of like you said travel where you're going to be the food and the culture that you might be surrounded by and I suppose with all that variety and difference what sort of stories have you got where it might have been a big challenge to you and have you been in a situation where maybe you were on air and things might not have gone to plan in terms of your type one diabetes management and how have you sort of pro provided a solution to that situation let's say yeah well i don't know how it is for other people but you know whenever i've first seen doctors and medical professionals about diabetes in the past they've always said oh you know keep lucas aid in your bag or keep a bag of jelly babies or you know something like that and you know, I, I don't always carry around a bag which is necessarily big enough to carry Lucozade when I'm carrying all my work stuff, you know, with a laptop, an iPad, all my pens, paper, you know, everything like that. Um, so Lucozade was never really a thing for me. And I have a huge sweet tooth, which isn't great being diabetic. But um, so jelly babies are a no-no for me because there's no way they'd last more than a couple of days in my bag without me, you know, hogging the lot. So... I actually kind of do it through sugar sachets instead, you know, if I'm ever in Pret or somewhere where there are just a, you know, a stash of those to take, I just take 10, 20 of them and, you know, find a place for them on my bag. And it's not the kind of thing that I'm going to kind of turn to when I just need something sweet because I'm not just going to kind of pour sugar down my neck. So, 
you know, if I'm in a game and I'm feeling slightly low, I'll just kind of, you know, have one or two of those to kind of see me through and then address address it, if you like, in, in full and proper after the game. But, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly happened several times. Um, not to the point where I've been, you know, so low that I feel like I can't kind of continue, but to the point where I think, oh, you know, I'm slightly to, slightly, starting to feel a little bit lightheaded here or I'm starting to get a bit of a, a sweat on my forehead. And as I was saying earlier, I'm just fortunate that I've kind of got, you know, the telltale signs and that I know when it's happening. So, yeah, it has happened in games. And there have been times, I wouldn't necessarily say that I've slurred my words, but I've certainly stumbled over my words, um, which isn't great. And, you know, you hate doing that as a commentator. It's really, really hard to kind of listen to yourself back. And, you know, I might know that I've done it because I've, I'm going low and because I'm having a hypo, but, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. It's just one of the, the things that you have to contend with. But um, it hasn't been easy, but thankfully, you know, I get through more games and I don't without having a hypo, so... Uh, in that sense, I've been quite lucky. That's good. It's good to hear that you're, you know, uh, it doesn't cause you too many issues. And like with many of us, I think once you get used to the condition, you've had it for a while, you learn your your tells, you learn your routines, you learn how to manage, and hopefully, learning by doing, you reduce those numbers of occurrences, if you like, of hypos uh, as you go along. So I'm, I'm sure you've got uh, good management good plans and good preparation in terms of those hypos ready to go yeah and it's it's also worth saying that my girlfriend's a dietitian so she she keeps me in uh, in relative check but you know the other thing that we actually found tricky in the early days is that she's a lot smaller portions than me so she's telling me that she's cooking me you know dish x you know whatever it might be I might think in my head straight away, okay, well, I'm having mashed potato and I'm thinking, well, how much would I inject for it? But actually, she's giving me two-thirds of that amount or maybe even half. Um, and so on occasion, you know, I have had hypos with her because, you know, although mentally I can kind of see it in front of me in my head, I'm actually thinking I'm having, I'm having you know, normal white potatoes or I'm having sweet potato. This is what I inject if I'm doing it. And I always give myself this normal size portion, but actually with her, it's different. So um, that was another thing to kind of, content with if you like but uh thankfully we've found we found a way to sort it out now yeah and, and that's it it's once you find that way i suppose is then um not necessarily always sticking to it but at least it gives you a platform to build on doesn't it and um i've got an interesting question for you now because this is something that just interests me more than anything is obviously as a commentator you get to see lots and lots of players. You come across um, many, many in, in the games that you're doing. I wondered if you've ever now had the chance to commentate on a game where there's been a player with diabetes playing. Uh, I've commentated on Ben Kogan before, uh, who I heard on your podcast um, a few weeks ago. Uh, not in full. I think I've commentated on many of his matches in highlights form. Um, because Ben plays in the in the lower leagues in England, um, but not knowingly, no, and you know you do quite a lot of research on other players, and um, you try and find out interesting bits of information about them, and you're often in their personal life section on Wikipedia, and you know googling their name and trying to find anything you can about them. But I have to say, I haven't really come across that many. To, well, I say that many. Ben's the only person um, that I can immediately think of. What but, was uh, what was that like? Did you? Do you feel like it's an opportunity to bring up that you live with? Did you ever mention it on, or is that an opportunity to talk about living with type 1 diabetes? 
I'd never mention it on air because, you know, for me as a commentator, it's not about you, it's about the people yeah. you're watching. I think if I commentated on one of Ben's full matches, you know, I would I would mention it and you would, I'd be referencing points that he's kind of brought up in this podcast because they're, you know, really interesting. I think if you're a fan sitting home and you know that he's got to go in at half-time and check his blood sugar levels just to make sure that, you know, he's good to go in the second half or that, you know, he's got energy gels and, and Lucasade or whatever it is right by the side of the pitch just in case he needs to come over and, you know, have something uh, to kind of give him a boost. That's what's really interesting as a as a fan, I think, and, and slightly differently, but on a similar on a similar level. I don't know if you saw the stories about Wesley Fofana, who plays for Leicester City. He's going through Ramadan right now, and the match actually got stopped for him the other night so that he could break his fast um, after the permitted time to get some you know, food and energy on board because he was really, really struggling in the game and Brendan Rodgers' manager had to take him off in a previous match because he could see that his energy levels were really, really low. So, albeit not diabetes, again, on a similar kind of, you know, food, energy uh, level, I find that really interesting because it's not the kind of thing you hear about too often. I'll say, James, I just want to take you back to, um, you mentioned about COVID and... um, sort of just sort of touched on it how did how did you find it affected your job and and and, and what you were doing i know you, you mentioned that a lot of, like you, the games you do abroad would you, you just do out of london anyway so that there was no no travel for you there but what was as, as a as a commentator when when football stopped and then when it's gradually phased back in how did how did it affect you um massively i mean you talk about being abroad, I was actually abroad at the time. I was actually in Athens watching Wolves play in Pilacos in the Europa League, which um, was actually played behind closed doors because of a, a COVID outbreak at Olympiacos, I think it was at the time. And that match finished and we were all sitting in the press box. Um, I was working for Talk Sport that night, so kind of, you know, getting the kind of interviews together and stuff like that to send back to London. And um, we all got a press release. Well, we all saw on Twitter, I think it was, saying that... Um, you know, football has stopped in some countries, but the Premier League were going to pursue with it. They didn't see any issue or anything like that, which is mad now, kind of, you know, looking back on what we've been on been through the last year and that the Premier League wanted to continue with no, you know, changes to the schedule or the way things are going to be done. And then 25 minutes later, Arsenal released a statement saying Mikel Arteta had got COVID. Um, and then the Premier League issued a statement straight away again saying football is stopped indefinitely until after the international break, I think it was. Um, and so I was like, well, And then I was at Athens Airport the next day, sitting ready to board my flight back to London. And within a space of about 20, 25 minutes, I got six emails, which basically emptied my diary, uh, cancelled everything I had. Um, and there was no work left, basically. Um, I was lucky because of the grants that came along for people who were self-employed, but um, for the next eight or nine weeks or whatever it was, I, I left London, went back to my parents' house um, and, just, and just stayed in the countryside until until it was all over, really. I think Germany were the first league to start back and so eventually came back to London to commentate on some Bundesliga matches. But yeah, I mean... From a work point of view, totally emptied my diary. And it's always interesting, really, because as a commentator, you know, say you want to take a week off for holiday, you can do that, but you can't You can't come back straight to work on a Saturday and turn up to, to Watford against Barnsley without doing any kind of preparation or anything like that. And so normally, you know, you can always do be doing work to kind of get ahead and 
um, you know, to kind of do work in advance so that when you do go back to work, whatever game it might be, you've got, you know, you've done some of the, the prep that you've got to do. Whereas this, you know, there was no work. I had no work in whether it be one month, two months, three months. No one knew when football or sport was going to restart. And so uh, I couldn't do anything. And so basically I just had to put my feet up and just say, look, you can't do anything. There's not much you can kind of do to even kind of get work back in your diary. You just got to sit and wait out, which was you know, hugely frustrating. But everyone in my profession was in the same boat. So, um, you know, thankfully it was only a kind of two, two and a half month break. Um, eventually got back into it. But I actually enjoyed the break from the work at the time because, you know, you weren't worrying about what work you had to do or anything like that. You just had to kind of rest up and... Uh, as it was for me, got some fresh air in my lungs, did plenty of walking, plenty of running. And uh, yeah, eventually the work came back, but it was a hugely uncertain time because there was literally no work with, and, and you know, not just from a country point of view, but you suddenly realise how many people don't have work because of football stopping, you know, whether you're someone that pulls up a Mr. Sizzle van and you're selling hot dogs at every sporting event or whether, you know, you're a steward or you know, all the people that are employed around any given football match suddenly that work is not there and I was just one of those unlucky people. Yeah, I think it was, it, it really struck me when I was having a conversation with someone else and they were talking about all the like, people like the stewards, the the programme sellers, anyone like that that's that's got any sort of job in any relation to the football, how how they would, they would have been impacted by it. And I guess I hadn't really thought about all these all these different people that that make the the match day what it is um just think about when you said you sort of came back after sort of nine weeks were you how did you feel about about going back did you did you feel safe did it did it feel presumably it felt a bit strange but what, what was your feeling like going back into that first game that you did yeah it was interesting it was a, it was a Bundesliga match at um at Talksport and on the bridge and I was back in Shropshire at the time, staying at my mum and dad's. And I remember booking a train. My mum was very worried because I was going back to London, which is obviously a kind of hot spot at the time in terms of people with COVID and the number of cases. Um, I remember buying a mask, which at the time was like a big deal because, you know, not many people have masks. And my dad had given me like one of his DIY ones from the garage. So, you know, got back on this train to London. The train was virtually empty because no one was travelling at the time. This would have been mid-May. And um, yeah, got back to talk sport. They put up um, lots of partitions, you know, in between you and a commentator. If you were kind of doing a, a game that had a co-commentator with you, you know, we were all given very strict instructions about where you were allowed to go and where you weren't allowed to go, what time you were allowed to come in, all of these different things, which were, you know, certainly very different to how things had been before. You know, there were sanitizing stations everywhere. You had to wear your mask at all times, apart from when you were commentating. You're only allowed in certain parts of the room, you know, and the equivalent of football matches as well. I remember going to Watford against Leicester, which was the first match back for me in a ground post-COVID at a Premier League game. Well, not post-COVID, sorry, but post-football restarting again. And everyone being very yeah. anxious that everyone was doing exactly the right thing and they weren't going to get in trouble for it and all this kind of thing. And it was very, very different. Um, things have relaxed ever so slightly since then in terms of people aren't quite so uptight about it and everyone knows now the rules of where you are and where you aren't allowed to go and that kind of thing. But yeah, at the start, it was a very tricky thing to get your head around, really. Yeah, it's interesting you say about uh, for you having all these 
all these things put in place and and you're one of the people that, that was sort of straight back into it did, did you feel um when you went back did, did, were you thinking hang on i'm diabetic i'm i'm in the the at-risk category should i be doing this or, or were you just do you know what this is my job i i need to make a living everything's safe or as safe as it can be i just yeah, need to, to much, get on with it yeah very much the latter in that you know i had two months of my feet up watching um midday mid you know midday television or whatever i would had enough of it and you know football's football's my life not only in terms of my job but in terms of my hobby as well you know I'm finding quite hard to turn off from it to be quite honest so you know i'd, I'd got <laughs> i remember sitting there at home watching old episodes of dream team or you know watching old episodes of premier league years i'd watched Fresh prints from start to finish. You know, I'd been, I'd been through all that, and I just needed something <laughs> to kind of focus, focus my mind on once again. And, and thankfully, you know, football, football was there for me. So, yeah, there was a risk, but for me personally, it was, a, it was a risk that I was willing to take. Um, and you know, thankfully, I, I say, my, being diabetic, I was. I love a bit of dream team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and yeah, you know, managed to get my vaccine in mid February. <laughs> Um, so again, from that point onwards, I kind of just felt quite safe, safe really, and that you know my, my chances of getting it were, were relatively low. You know, generally during the week, I'm kind of doing all my research at home, uh, so I'm not kind of mixing with loads of people. I'm kind of getting the tube in to do games, getting the tube back, um, and so yeah, I was quite relaxed about it to be honest. James, we're going to take a little bit of a break from the series questions and we're going to go on to uh, 90 seconds. Obviously, very well coined to the fact that there's 90 minutes in football um, of questions um, from Peachy. They're going to be random either ors. So I'm going to get the timer ready and Peachy's going to come at you with a number of questions that will uh, design to help us get to know you a little bit better with some random things though. Okay, let's do it. So I'm just going to set um, a timer. So I'm ready. I'm ready to go, Peach. Are you, are you ready? Yeah, I'm here. In three, two, one, timer's on. Who was your hero growing up? Julian Lescott. Messi or Ronaldo? Messi. Haaland or Mbappe? Uh, Haaland. Ferguson or Guardiola? Ferguson. Tea or coffee? And neither don't drink. What's your favourite food? Pizza. Uh, what's your favourite holiday destination? Istanbul. Rangers or Celtic? Uh, I've been to Rangers, so I'll say Rangers. Xbox or PlayStation? PlayStation. Villa or Spurs? Uh, do you know what? I used to work for Villa, and I Spurs are my other team in the Premier League that I like, apart from Wolves. I'll say Spurs. Good answer. Wrong answer, um, James. Wrong what answer. What are you currently reading? <laughs> Sorry, say that one again. What book are you currently reading? I'm not reading any book at the moment. I, I am a reader of articles, but not fiction. Uh, yeah. Timer, timer. That is 
the 90 seconds over. And James, I'm very disappointed that you opted for Tottenham Hotspur. Um, although after the weekend that they've had, somebody needs to help them out. <laughs> I do like Spurs and I went to that famous game against Inter at White Hart Lane in the Champions League and that, that was an incredible night when Bale destroyed Mycon. so uh, yeah that, I've seen a lot of Villa games oh, in the last few years but that was an incredible night and uh, yeah I've always quite liked Spurs really yeah, it, was a, it was a good game that that one back in the day that, that Spurs uh, <laughs> when Gareth Bale was absolutely flying for, for Tottenham he's not quite in that same rich vein of form now but um, I think he should be um, you know probably getting a bit more game time than maybe he is at the minute um, James I wanted to ask you a little bit around um, the word stigma and obviously in your line of work there is lots of people that probably want to be involved in the media there's lots of people that may want to maybe have a job like yours and the word diabetes doesn't always have the greatest of connotations around it especially sometimes from our friends in the media and what they portray I just wondered if you'd ever come up against any particular attitudes or you'd felt that maybe it wasn't a place that you could talk about it um, as openly as maybe you could have behind closed doors or, or with friends and family? Not necessarily, but the one thing I do often uh, face is, you know, as, as, as a member of the media and you go to lots of football matches, and I especially remember this at Villa Park because, you know, I went to every single game home and away for two seasons. Before the match, you know, you're sitting with your colleagues in the press room, you have lunch, you have a chat, a bit of a joke and all this kind of thing. And inevitably, you know, you're going around the country, so you're seeing different people each week. And then when you kind of lift up your T-shirt and you're suddenly screwing a needle onto a pen and you're injecting yourself, you can feel people looking at you. Um, and, you know, most of them, you know, they're kind of your mates or at least your colleagues. So they might say, oh, I didn't know you were diabetic or you know, something like that. And so you end up going through the same story and, you know, much of it I've talked to you two guys earlier on in this chat, but um, not from a negative point of view, but certainly there are a lot of conversations. Um, and it, yeah, it almost became a very regular thing at one point, but obviously the more people you see, you know, they obviously know that you are diabetic or something like that. So um, yeah, it, it was often a topic of conversation in the, in the press and media rooms beforehand, but no, I was lucky that it was never really in a negative sense, although obviously like the way I was before I was diagnosed, a lot of people just presume that diabetes comes about as a fact of you having a bad diet and bad habits, whereas for me being type 1, that wasn't the case. So you're almost having to you know, justify yourself as a fact that you know, this isn't through my own doing, this is through my immune system, you know, shutting down partially in a way that it did however many years ago. Um, but yeah, you, you kind of had to justify yourself in that sense, really. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose from um, that perspective, thinking about the way that stigma can play a part in the way that we are looked upon, portrayed, it's just nice to hear that it hasn't impacted upon you um, in that way. And I suppose from that perspective, long may that continue. Do you ever feel that that is anything that you would be concerned about in the future obviously you've had diabetes now for sort of five six years is do you do you ever feel that it could be something that people would look at differently or do you feel that um 
all of the experiences you've had it's just about explaining it it's allowing it's about educating people rather than them looking at you any differently in your in your line of work I think so and I think you know most people are quite open-minded aren't they you know Mm. a lot of people who work in the media increasingly so as we're seeing at the moment are a lot younger um people have open attitudes to things people educate themselves the internet is incredible kind of you know database you've got you know diabetes uk which do incredible work kind of opening people's minds to it and uh you know they've got a website with all kinds of resources on there which people can see now um and i I think we're kind of past that to be honest um it may be different in a few different countries where you know people's attitudes are slightly different but certainly here now i don't really anticipate that being a problem i think you know everyone's very supportive and understands the situation you're in the only way the only thing actually thinking about it that i have received slightly negative things about it when i've been on nights out and i sense you two guys probably started to hear that i'm glad that i didn't have to go through uni with it because it would have affected alcohol and drinking a lot more i don't really drink a lot now if, if i'm going out with mates i'll have you know two three four five drinks no problem and kind of you know inject accordingly but um i wouldn't go out and get drunk now really at all to be honest but i remember when i've been on stack dues in the past couple of years that people have kind of commented saying oh you know you might be being a bit boring or something like that and i was like well if i'm boring and so be it because i'd rather be <laughs> i'd rather be slightly more boring and still enjoy myself rather than you know than drink and kind of have consequences as a result of it so um that's the only time really but that's through kind of um you know people just not kind of seeing you in the same way as themselves and being a bit naive to it all really do you put that down to to naivety and and, and lack of education about it yeah i think so i mean we all went to school together i mean the people i'm talking about we all went to school together and went through the same classes in in science and pe and all that kind of thing and maybe i just wasn't listening at the time because i wasn't that interested at school but i don't remember diabetes being a big topic um I mean, presumably in biology, I'm trying to think yeah. where it would have come up, but uh, yeah, so maybe, maybe just a lack of education, but um, whether that's changed now, it, it's hard to say. It's, uh, as, I, as I was saying a minute ago, I think the internet has probably opened a lot more people's eyes to it than it would have been before, you know, even when I was at school, um, it wasn't such a big thing, whereas now you've got social media and, you know, all kinds of things and you're seeing people be kind of brand ambassadors for the, the Libra thing which I kind of went on my arm now which obviously wasn't even a, a thing back then so I think yeah there's a lot more stuff going on now than when it was than it was when I would have been at school I think yeah I'm, I'm just going to take you back you, you talked a little bit um about some of your games how you, you you've traveled to, to different countries and obviously some of the games um that you're you're commentating on that are abroad you're, you're doing it from your, your studio in London but how, how do you find when, when you've got to travel um, and, and going to different time zones? And, and I know that some people who, who do shifts, for example, say that their body just gets so used to it um, that it's not a problem. But in, in terms of you for your, for your sleep and the timing of injections and, and, and things like that, when you go abroad, do you find it impacts you or, or do you find you're used to it now and, and it's fairly yes. smooth? It's a really good question, actually, because what I've done, um, certainly with volleyball, I travel a lot around Europe, you know, as far as Yekaterinburg, where I went last year, and they're maybe 
six, seven hours ahead or something like that. I can't remember. But certainly when you go into, you know, mainland Europe, you're kind of at least one or two hours ahead of what we are here. And what I decided to do was just keep the time zone as though we're in the UK. I, you know, they might be two hours ahead. So I might end up going to bed at two o'clock in the morning rather than, than 12 as it is. But I, I do it exactly as it would be here. So, you know, if it means I'm going to bed slightly later than normal, then so be it. But for the sake of for the sake of diabetes and my sleep pattern and everything like that, I'd rather um, I'd rather just keep it as if I'm in the UK and you know deal with the consequences the next day in terms of tiredness or something like that. So um, that's the way I do it. And uh, so far, it's worked out quite well for me. But as I said, I, it is quite easy because the furthest. I generally go is into Turkey, which may be three or four hours ahead. Um, but yeah, generally, if you're traveling to Italy, Germany, Poland, uh, you know, you're only like dealing with one hour extra. But that's the kind of way that I've dealt with it so far. And I stay on a UK time zone. Brilliant. It sounds like you've got that. That's worked out for you perfectly. That's brilliant that, that you're able to do that. Have you ever had any problems with traveling, sort of going down the, the funny story? when you can look back at it with having forgotten insulin or um you've you've been stopped at the airport and, and people are sort of staring at you in a funny way have you, got, have you got any stories like that or is it all pretty dull yeah i used to be really self-conscious about it especially pulling out a pen putting a needle on and you know you can just feel the people around you are looking at you and wondering what you're doing whether you're a you know a druggie or whether you've got a legit reason to be you know sticking a needle inside you but um yeah it, it's, it's all quite normal i haven't really had any problems at the airport um i have you know you know often when you're kind of about to put your bags through the scanners i've kind of I've almost just got the pens out to kind of show to the person who's saying you know we only allowed 100 mils of liquids or you know please put your bags in the in the boxes and take out your laptops yeah. and chargers and all, you know all that kind of stuff i've just kind of always declared it beforehand to say look i've got this watch you want me to do and then kind of gesture one way or another to kind of keep it in your bag or to to put it on the side so um from that side of things it hasn't really been an issue to be honest um james just wanted to talk to you a little bit now as well obviously you've established yourself in the world of commentary you've now got to do some amazing games you've built your reputation up and clearly now hoping to obviously probably continue in this this area for as long as you can I wondered who sort of inspired you or what sort of role models you had in commentary to begin with and who did you look up to or was there ever a, a famous bit of commentary that really, you know, catches your eye or or really um, pushed you into this area or anything that sticks out? There's no one that pushed me into it, but in terms of role models, it was definitely Clive Tilsley, you know. He was at the top of his game, commentating on Champions League matches, for a very successful Manchester United team and then Liverpool team, um, as they went on to win the you know that Champions League in in Istanbul in two thousand and five or six, whenever it was. Um, and I used to I honestly used to love those Tuesday and Wednesday nights when Manchester United were playing. I wasn't a Manchester United fan. I had no interest in supporting them from that point of view, but the buzz it used to give me um, was incredible and. Uh, I love listening to the clips now, whether it be on sports documentaries or, you know, you can just go on YouTube and, and hear them do those famous nights, whether it's Man United in Turin 
or you know go forward into the, the final in Barcelona or the you know the various nights over the years it was incredible I remember Wayne Rooney making his debut against Fenerbahce for Manchester United as well um, and Tilsley was always the voice uh, and it's quite sad now that we don't hear him as much as previous because you know that's the way it is in, in sports broadcasting that contracts change people change you know you're never kind of safe for too long really but Tilsley was certainly the man that um, although I didn't know at the time that I wanted to be a commentator or maybe I would have liked to have been a commentator but didn't really see a natural way into the industry uh, he was certainly the man that um, I held in the highest regard yeah uh, Clive Tilsley is uh, a voice that is synonymous it st- he sticks out in my mind as one of those commentators who has had the opportunity to comment out on some of the best games that I can remember. Um, growing up in a similar era to yourself, um, James, as well, knowing some of those games that you're talking about there. And his voice, I can hear his voice as you talk about that, sharing his views, sharing the games. And yeah, it, it does, it sticks in your mind. And um, I, I can see how, you know, for looking at it through a different lens, how that would have, inspired you it built the suspense in the game and um you know created that affiliation then for you to to commentary because um it certainly makes it more memorable a game hearing the the words and the voice and the emotion that's put in by a commentator so um it certainly adds to the game of football and then i wanted to just as we're sort of coming towards the end of of the podcast james i wanted to ask you a little bit about your your views now on the future for for people with diabetes and what sort of things are you hoping for for yourself personally um with diabetes and what do you sort of hope for for all of us that are living with a condition i know you do um you work with diabetes uk and there's a link to you um with them um what sort of things do you do you hope for or do you hope that maybe diabetes uk uk can sort of achieve or help us all achieve yeah, I mean, uh, I guess I guess awareness is a massive thing because for me that's something that I didn't have. Maybe through um, again like naivety or just maybe I just hadn't kind of taken notice of enough stuff. But now I know that you know diabetes you can have a great section on their website in terms of you know being able to go there and seeing the kind of telltale signs of you having diabetes. Again, maybe I was just arrogant in my own self that I thought I didn't really have anything at the time and just thought whatever it was that I'd have would pass but you know I lost like two stone in weight as well at the time and I just thought I was smashing it at the gym but you know that's not the way it turned out to be um you know I'm sitting here at the moment today doing research for matches that I'm doing at the weekend seeing tv ads for the next stage of the the Libra thing that I've got in my arm where it's going to alert you whether you're you know you're going too high or too low I think that's amazing hopefully you know it's kind of something that because it's still quite an expensive thing you know the last time I bought it in the shops it was it was 50 quid for the sake of um was it two weeks or four weeks depending on how many senses you got I can't remember exactly what it was but it was it was a quite an expensive thing and you know not everyone could afford it I was lucky that um I could afford to go and get it from Superdrug but um yeah I just think that I think eventually the cost of those kind of things will come down. They've already kind of got competitors in the market, so that's going to have to force the price down, I think, over time. And, and yeah, I guess it's hopefully that people kind of realise 
you know what it is when they're getting it if you if that makes sense and so i guess school education kind of brings it to the forefront a lot more um and that kind of thing really i think as you say diabetes uk do a, do a really good job um and hopefully people can just be you know aware of it and the fact that they've got kind of you know even got helplines that people can ring if they're struggling with it as i said i didn't struggle i was lucky in that i had that kind of mindset where i could just apply myself to something new but obviously it's not always the case um for everybody um but hopefully yeah that, i mean as i said hopefully it becomes a lot more complex hopefully it doesn't i mean i don't want people to get diabetes but yeah. if they do get diabetes you know there are resources there to help and people who can help as well yeah absolutely and i think um certainly aligning what we do with the diabetes football community trying to raise awareness as you said and, and create opportunities to educate uh, it seems to be a, a huge part of what all of us want to try and achieve whether that's diabetes uk or whether that's the diabetes football community i think the more people that are aware of the condition and accurately aware of the condition the the better people will be informed and the easier our lives will become because people uh you know, they reduce their stereotypes and their stigmas and they really understand what we're going through as a result of greater awareness, greater knowledge being out there. And also, you know, that access to technology, I completely agree with you. Um, technology has significantly improved my life with type 1 diabetes and it sounds like it's done the same for you. I know it has for John as well. And um, it's certainly a symbol for, I think, all of us of hope and for change and something to be excited about for the future because I think it's getting to a place where I hope that more people will have access to that sort of technology in the United Kingdom and then more widely across the globe to make it easier and sort of linking to that then James is that this idea of I wondered what your message would be to those with diabetes and those that live with our condition who may be aspiring to do something like you're doing at the moment in the world and to be involved in sport to maybe commentate to be in the media in a, a high profile position what would you say to somebody that might be growing up with type 1 diabetes what would be your message of hope to them well there's certainly no barriers to entry in terms of doing my job that's you know diabetes is something that's never been questioned the people who've questioned about it from a curiosity point of view but they've never said you can't do this because you've got that. Um, me, myself, I've always just been trusted to, to get on with the job regardless. They know that I'll treat myself appropriately. And yeah, as I said earlier, you know, it hasn't been perfect. There's been times on there where I've, I've had high lows and I'm sure it will continue to happen in the future because that's life. No one's perfect. You're not always going to be absolutely perfect in what you do and the way you inject and what you eat. Um, as I said earlier as well, food's a massive part of my life um i love eating out i love trying new foods but with that comes a a cost at times i guess because trying new things eating out you're never going to know exactly what you're eating and the amount of carbs and sugar is in something so you know that's just the way it is but i think it's going to get to a point i imagine if we look back at this in maybe you know 20 30 years time and you think well you know some people still didn't know what to do or some people weren't able to do this or that i think we'll probably look back and laugh because i think things will have moved on so much that it'll be a lot like easier for everyone so um i would say don't worry about it 
and I said earlier, the people out there that can help, there's websites that can help, podcasts like this can help because it normalizes the condition and the um, the disease as it is. Um, so it's really not something to worry about, I would say. No, absolutely, James. Really appreciate that. Great message to sort of bring us towards the end of the podcast as well. And uh, we like to sort of end on a on a little, on a lighter note, just to, again, um, have a bit of a, a chuckle with some of our guests that come on. So we're going to go to now three questions that Mr. Peach um, will run you through what's happening. So, John, over to you. James, all you've got to do is pick a number between one and 25 and it will equate to a question that I've got written down. So what's your first number? Five. Five. Oh, I like this one. Who is your current favourite player to watch? Oof. Uh, oh, where to start? Um, I can't really pick a Wolves player because none of them have been that good in recent times. <laughs> Favorite player, favorite player. <laughs> uh, I honestly, I honestly don't know if I have one. I, you know what? You, this is probably meant to be a quick, quick answer, but you watch football in a different way as a commentator, and you can't kind of almost appreciate it as a as a fan. Um, yeah. Holland's great. You know, you asked me that in the quick ones earlier. Holland's great. I love him because he's got his own personality, which I don't think you see a lot in footballers these days. And although as a journalist, I probably shouldn't like, you know, the interviews he's done where he's quite short and abrupt in another way, I can quite appreciate it because a lot of footballers are stock answers now. They're almost robots in their interviews. And for as much as, as he's an amazing player, uh, he's quite different off the pitch as well. So I'm going to say, I'll say Erling Holland. Do you reckon, do you reckon he'll leave in the summer? Um, it sounds like it, but, but Dortmund are quite... Uh, Bolshe club, you know, they're quite strong in their stance about things. So it's going to be interesting because I think the money that they would want for him isn't necessarily going to be there for a lot of clubs this summer because of COVID and lots of them are kind of releasing their accounts at the moment and it's not looking good for a lot of them. So they might get lucky in that they get him for another year. But um, I don't know what kind of ambitions he has. You know, he's still very, very young, of course. But Dortmund aren't really in a great place from a footballing point of view at the moment. So... He may well move on, I guess. Wait and see. Um, next number. Uh, 17. 17. Um, what is your current, or sorry, what is your favourite TV show? Doesn't have to be current. Uh, Line of Duty. Hands down. Not even, a, not even a question about it. And I'm obviously watching it up to date at the moment, but my girlfriend hasn't watched anything, so I'm watching... Is it Series 6? I think we're currently on up to date at the moment, but with her, we're about to start Season yeah. 3. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm kind of watching it from all angles at the moment, and it's actually quite helpful because, uh, you know, you're learning stuff about the current series and watching the past series at the same time. So, yeah, line of duty. We've done exactly the same. We're, we're up to date on Season 6, but we've gone back, and I think at the start of Season 6, we started on Season 1 again, watching them simultaneously, and, and you sit there's so many things you go... Oh yeah, that that's the link to that. That's the link to that. I think it's if you've got the time, it's a great way to do it. But um, oh, what what a program! By far, yeah, incredible. Best. Yeah, go on then. Final number. Uh, we'll go for eight. No, let's say it's football. It's nine. Eight. Nine, got me nine. 
Oh, he's got nine. Oh, good. Um, if you could go 24 hours without diabetes, what would you do? Um, I would sink my face into a pick and mix. Uh, one of those pick and mix things that you get in the middle of uh, <laughs> shopping centres and just do it because that, that is my guilty pleasure. Like, I absolutely love sweets. Um, and it's funny because I went to the dentist a couple of months ago and she was like, oh, you know, you're doing quite well. I mean, you must not have a sweet tooth. And I was like, no, it's literally the opposite. I don't really know what happened there, but yeah. Uh, sour sweets, I absolutely love. Uh, but generally, yeah, any kind of sweets, the snakes, uh, the fizzy things, anything, I will take it because I absolutely love it. Well, that's, a, that's a great show. Just, it's interesting, it's like something you, you said as to be your favourite food. Um, do you, slightly going off the questions now, but how do you find that that, that affects your blood sugars? Because I know that's for a lot of people, pizza is one of those that, yeah, do you know what we love, but it's the one that wreaks the most havoc with blood sugars. Do, do you find the same or have you, have you managed to nail it? Certain pizzas, yeah, like Domino's used to send me absolutely crazy. Um, I don't know what they put in it. I've never really accepted it that much, but I don't eat Domino's anymore, partly because of that. Um, it just used to send me mad the same as having curries, which as a Midlands boy growing up is obviously a big part of my life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, generally generally pizzas you get from the supermarket and that I generally find aren't too bad. And obviously they've got the, you know, the kind of um, numbers on the back of the packets as well that you can kind of look at to see exactly how many carbs are in it. So from that point of view, it's not too bad. But yeah, the takeaway pizzas can be a little bit more unpredictable. And as I said, especially in my findings dominoes has been the the worst of them to be yeah. honest oh complete completely agree with that we got we had an inset day um a working one earlier well a couple of weeks ago and they had decided to treat us all to dominoes pizza for lunch and i was probably the only person that was actually gutted because <laughs> i just thought oh the afternoon's just going to be havoc and yeah sure enough we had three slices and oh i think i I, I I had looked online. I was like, right, it's telling me that's ninety grams of carbohydrate. Oh, I tell you what, it wasn't. It was needed no, a lot more insulin it. throughout the afternoon. I don't know what, whether it depends on what toppings you have or something they put in their tomato sauce, or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the garlic and herb sauce. I don't know, but there's something which which sends you to another level with that. To be honest, so. Um, and it's quite hard because I live quite no, close to a Domino's uh, shop as well. And so you walk past and you kind of smell it and you think, <laughs> oh, I really want a pepperoni passion. But uh, I've resisted now for probably a good couple of years. So, uh, um, yeah, I'm quite I'm, I'm quite lucky that pizzas generally are okay. But you have to just be careful with one or two of them. I'll I tell you what, there's going to be people listening to this when it goes out. They're suddenly going to have a bit of a craving for pizza and um I think I might take a bit of blame for that, but no, it's James. It's been it's been absolutely brilliant having you on. Thank you for thank you for giving up your time. Really interesting hearing the insights um, from your from you and with regards to work and, and and your thoughts and feelings and how I think that the big thing is how you haven't let it hold you back and how you haven't let it stop you doing what you love. And yeah, just thank you for for, for doing what you are and and, and the work you're doing um and just yeah just being open about your diabetes and and yeah thanks for giving up your time it's been it's been really good to chat yeah thanks for the stuff that you guys do as well because it really kind of normalizes things especially 
you know, if you can listen to a kind of subsection of people as it is with you guys, you know, people in the football industry who, you know, are kind of working in the same sport and albeit doing slightly different jobs and slightly different careers, it kind of is the same at the same time. You can kind of relate to each other a lot. So it's a, it's a really interesting listen. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, just to echo what John said, James, really, really appreciate you giving up your time. It's been a fascinating insight into the world of media and commentary whilst living with type 1 diabetes. Uh, very different to some of the stories that we've already told, but one that's really, really valuable, I'm sure, to so many that will be listening. So really appreciate you coming on to speak to us on the Diabetes Dugout today. No worries. I mean, honestly, if there's anyone listening, if wants to ask anything about it, um, I'm always available on Twitter and my you know, website has my kind of contact details. So if there's ever anything like that, don't be afraid to, to you know, pick up your phone and ask the question. Perfect. Thanks very much, James. Cheers, guys. Well, that's it for this episode and we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has tuned in and don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on whichever platform you're listening to us on and whilst you're there, if you could rate and review us, that will help us and the show to reach more people. Whilst if you'd like to get in contact with us about any ideas or thoughts for the show, send us an email about the Diabetes Dugout to the Diabetes Football Community at gmail.com or head to the website www.thediabetesfootballcommunity.com for more information about our project. Thanks for joining us and tune in next time for more stories, inspiration and information about diabetes in football.